the first uh, chunk of the sermon, I'm going to just kind of do a little run-up to, like, through getting numbers, the first third of numbers, and it's like just a context. Um, then we're going to zero in on that center part of uh, numbers, and in the last third of the sermon, we're going to look at um, how the themes from this particular part of scripture just kind of continue to echo through the New Testament and challenge us. So, um, the, the first, I don't know how recently you guys have tried to read numbers, but like amongst the beginning chapters, I have probably got this long list of names and lots of instructions. Um, even just the name like numbers, um, it's kind of interesting to even think, what kind of numbers in the Bible? But, um, despite the temptation to kind of skip it, uh, for all of you who have persevered in reading it, you'll uh, recall it's a really um, profound book. It tells us um, it's about Israel and indeed about God. And so I want to look today at how uh, Numbers is really closely tied into Christ and how richly Numbers is referenced through the New Testament. We're going to look at how Numbers themes are echoed throughout Scripture, particularly in order to counsel our hearts and minds with the promises of God and especially in times when the future may seem uncertain. So um, hopefully also, as, as I preach, that we'll all be hopefully cautioned in a really instructive way by observing how Israel's failure to trust God's promises and make a determined commitment uh, ourselves to trust our lives and our futures uh, to, to God's care, no matter our present circumstances. I think we do that so often, don't we? So let's pray and get into it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you've been so generous to give us your word. We thank you that you've recorded the history of Israel so that we might know you more fully, to appreciate your character, and so we can understand both your faithfulness and the nature of your promises. We thank you that we can learn from Israel's mistakes and doubts and unfaithfulness, and thank you that in your generosity you've allowed us to become people who you call your own. Our Lord, I pray myself that you help me preach clearly in a way that's faithful to your word, and it helps each of us to know you and serve you in our lives. So, grant us understanding by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, you guys are probably familiar with Numbers. is the fourth book of uh, the Bible. It's in the uh, Bible Pentateuch. Um, the Lord has called Israel specifically to be his people in a land that he promised to give them, where they could enjoy rich fellowship with him. And it's entirely consistent with God's original design in Genesis and his ongoing plan that there will be people who know him, who love him, who fill the earth with his people, who radiate his love and his justice and his mercy and his goodness and his peace. So Numbers is a call to return to intimacy with God and to participate in his purposes for humanity. So here's the storyline of Numbers as I see it in a few sentences. God carefully prepares his chosen people to enter the promised land. God gives them everything on a spoon, but despite all he's done, the people still don't trust him. Nevertheless, God perseveres with them and keeps his promises. So, in a sense, this sermon uh, explores the reality of spiritual failure. Um, it's not just about Israel's spiritual failure. It tells us a great deal about our own tendency to go spiritually astray. And so I think we should be sobered as we consider the cautionary nature of what happens with Israel. But thankfully, rather than focusing solely on the spiritual failure of Israel, Numbers also beautifully displays how our God of holiness and righteousness and power responds to the failure of his people because of his great love. So in this way, Numbers encouraging, uh, encouragingly reveals to us as readers, thousands of years later, wonderful insights into the aspect of God's character, such as his mercy and his kindness and his patience. 
We also see God's commitment to keep his promises, those to Israel and the ongoing promises made to us as recorded in scripture. So let me just remind you of some of those earliest promises. So back in Genesis 12, 12, the Lord appeared to Abram and instructed him, go from your father's country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in Genesis 17.5, at the age of 99, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham and promises to make him the father of a multitude of nations. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring and after you, uh, after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So the book of Israel, or at Numbers, uh, the, the, sorry, the book of Numbers begins, but Israel is still camped at the base of Mount Sinai. They've been residing there as they arrived as frightened and overwhelmed people in Exodus 19. They'd escaped slavery in Egypt amid that um, really quite terrifying bloodshed of God's Passover. And God calls Moses to scale Mount Sinai alone and reveals his covenant uh, to, to Israel through him and his instruction to them, including the Ten Commandments, and really detailed instructions you might remember for building the tabernacle. And once that was completed, the glory of the Lord descended as a physical cloud and filled the tabernacle with God's own presence. And the Israelites remind them outside after all of Leviticus where they're given detailed laws and instructions and so far they've witnessed unparalleled revelations of God and really extraordinary rescues by God's miraculous power. So they've seen the parting of the Red Sea, there's been the miraculous provision of water in the desert and then the daily provision of manna, the miraculous food provided by God when they were starving and freaking out in the desert wilderness. And God had revealed himself like never before to his chosen people through Moses. He'd lovingly given them clear instructions, and even more than that, his presence was now physically with them so they could have confidence in him. And so in the first ten chapters of Numbers, Israel was given the final instructions to now enter the promised land. Let me summarize these instructions for you before we go into detail into that middle section. So God asked Moses to take a census of each tribe of Israel, so each one is counted and specifically arranged, and there's special detail given about the Levite tribe who are given priestly responsibilities in caring for the tabernacle, God's dwelling place. So God summarizes the need for purity both in the camp uh, and in their marriages, and God instructs Aaron, the other priest, to bless the people with this well-known blessing that we spoke of before. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall I put my name, so shall so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So he gives them all the instructions for the tabernacle and its offerings, and lastly, God reminds them of the instructions to annually celebrate and remember the Passover. That lastly, night when the culmination of all of the plagues, for God's fierce judgment killed all the firstborn of Egypt, and God's anger passed over his own people. Our faithful God then rescued and released them from slavery, um, and so the Passover meal was meant to be an annual, like very literal, meal to remember. So, God continued to prepare them and mobilize them so they could enter the promised land. And God's glory then appeared as a cloud that rested over the tabernacle by day and as a fire uh, over the tabernacle by night. And then when the cloud lifted, the people were to 
follow the cloud to God's glory until God, God eventually set up the cloud and showed them where to set up the tent. And he gave them a system of trumpet blasts. You might remember he told them the various things they needed to do. With that, they left, out, they left um, the, the wilderness of Sinai towards the Promised Land. And they arrived very quickly at a place called Kadesh, at the edge of the Promised Land, in Numbers uh, 12, 16. And you can see at this point, God's already fulfilled his promise uh, of many descendants. So when they went into the wilderness, there was 70. And at this stage, there's more than 600,000 men of fighting age. So they're ready to be faithful, to be the obedient generation who enjoyed divine fulfillment as they settled in the land that God has promised to Abraham. And then, with all this excitement, with all this promise, the whole middle section of Numbers is just a total disaster. No sooner had they started to travel, they also began to complain. It was so bad that God's anger erupted as fire in the camp until the people cried to Moses, who prayed on God's I prayed on their behalf until God showed mercy. And next they began to complain about the miraculous condition of manna. They began to fantasize, really quite bizarrely, about how wonderful the slave food was back in Egypt. Can you imagine, like, eating slave food, so luxurious, so fresh, as served as these giant cuts of meat. But this discontentment had distorted their sense of reality to the point that they were speaking as true, convinced that they were correct. It's a danger for us, too. Um, it's super perilous. Like, discontentment is blinding, and we really have to resist it wholeheartedly. And we can only fight it realistically with the strength that God provides. But Moses was so grieved by the complaining of the people that he himself cried out to God that the burden of leading the people was too great for him. And so Moses gave him 70 elders. I fancy if I did the math, they had the responsibility over maybe 30,000 people each. Um, what does God do about their complaints and, and their demands uh, to eat meat? I told the kids before, God gives them so much meat, he says it's going to come out from their nostrils. Moses said, question, how God could possibly provide meat for such a huge group of desert? He's like, what, are you going to empty the sea? Are you going to empty the land? And he earns this very solid rebuke from God. God blows in this vast uh, cloud of quails, those little birds, and they're forced to eat it for a whole month. Um, it reminded me a little bit of early days of the gospel church when Sam and I used to go spearfishing regularly. We really enjoyed the water and we really enjoyed kind of the hunt. But I'd get kind of bored of spearing fish. So sometimes I'd start to fantasize about like maybe seeing a lamb shake funny one or a school of bee cheeks. Um, <laughs> in that season, Andy uh, went away one weekend and so I just went and got a gigantic packet of meat. I think it's a lamb job actually, but at dinner, lamb chops. I had lunch lamb chops. By the time it came to my third meal, I was like, seriously, I'm playing already. Um, but each Israelite had to eat about 2,200 liters worth of these tiny quail. Can you imagine? Like, you know, bad news. Israel is measured in a liquid quantity. And in his anger against Israel's grumbling, God brought a plague that killed many of them as they gorged on the meat they had demanded by meat. The rebellion even involved Moses' own siblings who grew jealous of Moses' status as God's spokesman. They complained and demanded that they also be recognized for speaking for God. And anger, God struck his sister Miriam with leprosy. And it was only when Moses petitioned God in prayer that Miriam was healed. And so all of this grumbling and complaining reflected deeply dissatisfied hearts because no matter what God had done for them, no matter the miracles, the rescue, the instruction, the mercy, it just wasn't enough. Are dissatisfied and they sinned by complaining and they continue to sin. 
But I want to just illustrate, this isn't like a historic issue, kind of isolated to Israel, and I suspect you guys know that, but let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 1. Paul considers this cautionary tale from Numbers is directly relevant to us. So, verse 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, but for most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ for the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. We, we know, like, Israel is grumbling and complaining is our experience too. The temptations we experience are of the same nature, the same severity that caused Israel to stumble, uh, stumble and fail. And so, as we've been encouraged, as we read this ancient story, consider that it's been written through the inspiration of God himself, that it might be an example to us, instructing us that we don't fail in the same way. But despite all the grumbling and complaining, we see that God continues to lead Israel onward until his people arrive at the edge of the promised uh, land of Canaan. And we're going to focus now on uh, uh, the end of Numbers 13 and chapter 14. So from the periphery of the Promised Land, they sent out spies, 40 of them, to inspect the land of Canaan as the Lord commanded. And when they returned from inspecting the whole length of the land of Canaan from south to north, the spies came back with huge clusters of grapes on poles and pomegranates and figs. Sounds pretty good. They reported back about a land that was just as God had described it, bountiful and lush. In Numbers 13, 27, we came to the land to which you sent us, it flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit, and in the countries. However, the people who dwell in the land are very strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. They are stronger than we. So even as they spread fear about the promised land, Caleb, who was with them as one of the spies, tries to encourage people. He says, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the spies continued to paint the promised land as this impossibly hopeless quest. In their fear, they grossly exaggerated uh, what they saw when they described Canaan as a land that devours its inhabitants. They also lied about seeing a population of ancient warriors called the Nephilim, those were the uh, giants that were destroyed um, when God flooded the world in Genesis 7 at the time of Noah. But despite this, they say, all the people we saw are of great height. And, and then we saw the, the Nephilim, and we've seen for ourselves like little grasshoppers, so we've seen for them. With this report of such huge fortified cities and ancient warrior giants, the Israelites began to wail through the night. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying that they would have preferred to die in slavery or die in the wilderness. They questioned why God would bring them all this way only for them to be killed. Their wives and their children take them prey. And they set out to choose a different leader to take them back to Egypt to be slaves again. I want to read a chunk of numbers uh, together. So, I'll read one from Numbers 14 and 7. 
The two of us realized Joshua and Caleb have remembered God's overwhelming power that he had given them victory after victory in the past, and grieved by the cowardice of their fellow spies and the total amnesia of the people of Israel about God's faithfulness toward them. Joshua and Caleb said this in Numbers 14 7. The land which we pass through despite is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows of milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That's such an excellent truth. That's a chance for God's people to trust in God. What are they going to do? Let's read again from verse 10 about how they respond to this faithful end. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will the people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. You catch it? God's so sick of the grumbling Israelites' faithlessness and proposes to just wipe them out and start again with Moses. And Moses, believe it or not, you might recall, has been in this position before, back in Exodus 32.9. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Therefore, let me alone, that I'm wrath, and I've grown against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Yet back in Numbers 14, back in our passage from today, um, verse 13, Moses pleads again with the Lord, asking him to refrain from destroying Israel. This is what he says to Almighty God about what would happen if the Lord disinherited his people. Then the Lord and the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought this people in your might up from them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land that they have heard of you, O Lord, that you are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations will have heard your fame, and they will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring his people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. So what he's about to say, notice the motivation that drives Moses. Moses' primary motivation isn't because there's like children present, or like being like, what about humanity? Moses has this really God-centered view of things. He cares about God's glorious reputation, and he remembers God's words. And he appeals to God based on God's revelation, in response to the golden calf at the time of the Ten Commandments. And in his intercessory prayer for the people, Moses has this incredible boldness of God. So he uses God's own words, a promise, of what God has revealed in his own character in Exodus 34 to ask God to change his mind. So to hold back. Verse 17. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children for the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And then the Lord said, I have pardoned according, according to your word, but, as, but truly, as I live, all of the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And none of the men who have seen my glory and the signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have yet brought me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring the land uh, into which he went, 
and his descendants will possession it. But now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So, spiritual life tells them to turn around. Um, in verse 26, the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which have grumbled against me. Say to them, As long as I live, first the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. They say, We'd rather die in the wilderness. And God says, Okay. Um, and all of your number, listed in the census, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear the iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses set to spy the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land, they died by the plague before the Lord. And of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Tekuna remained alive. The picture of the judgment of God. But listen to their response in verse 39. When Moses told these words to the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly, and they rose early in the morning, and they went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we're going to go to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord, when that will not succeed? Do not go up. For the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down by, before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the height of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant nor uh, Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. The people had listened to Caleb. God would have brought them into the promised land. It was right there, and he, he was ready to. He would have defeated their enemies by his divine, divine might, and they would have enjoyed that land, flowing with milk and honey and grapes and cheese and pomegranates and whatnot. And even though God's salvation literally dwelt among them in the tabernacle and went out before them to lead them in victory, they refused to trust in the Lord and allowed him to fight for them. So instead, they had their tragic, foolish request granted. They said something shocking. They'd rather die in the desert than by fighting in the promised, for the promised land. It's exactly what God does. For the next 38 years, they wander in circles, like literal circles, in the wilderness of Moab. One after another, this generation slowly dies in the desert. Only faithful Caleb and Joshua, and those men younger, and those younger than 20 are spared. And it's just terrible judgment. Totally deserved and deeply tragic. And so the rest of the story of the book of Numbers continues with wonderful mercy shown by God. And the mysterious story of the talking donkey and his rider and the pagan prophet Balaam who comes to fear God and numerous other stories that you can read yourself. But this is how it finishes. God prepares the next generation. And as he prepared their parents to enter the promised land, the next generation actually does end up entering the, the land of uh, God's faithful promise in the book of Joshua. 
want to just as we shift into the last little section of the um, sermon, I want us to be able to recognize the themes here from the rest of the Bible. Um, the things you know, but good to encourage and, and remind ourselves of them. So the first thing is out of the promised inheritance of Canaan. So we also have a promised land, like Israel and the wilderness, but presently exist as strangers and aliens, scripture says, who don't live in the trappings of the present world, but we live for the world to come. Because we've been promised an eternal inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. 1 Peter 1 3 reminds us that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, as God dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle, whilst they were awaiting the promised land, God continues to dwell with us in, with increasing intimacy. So God's dwelling with us is uh, as clear as through Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we have seen His glory in John 14. But since His ascension, God dwells in us in a much more personal way through Holy Spirit inside everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians explains, Do you not know that you are God's temple? Um, and God's spirit world in you, God's spirit tabernacles inside of you. Remember, um, again, back in the early days of gospel church, we had um, an Iranian couple, some of you might remember, and uh, came to faith, and when Yassi heard about the reality of God's indwelling spirit, she, she realized it was true, she resonated with it because she had experienced it, but she, she just started bawling. Uh, I think uh, that struck a lot of us at the time, it was like, that should also stir our affections just like it did when we first believed as well. Um, this passage also contains a prominent explicit warning from those punished on the very border of the Promised Land. Leaping from these pages is a cautionary tale of a whole generation of Israel who rejected God, desiring death in the desert, after four decades of already wandering there, rather than allowing God to give them victory and rest in the Promised Land, like it did say. But multiple parts of the Old Testament, including the Psalms, demonstrate that similar catastrophic failures to obey, um, to obey explain why it's deeply scarred into the collective memories of many of the Jewish people for the generations since. And so I'd like to try, if I can, to see the lessons of this chapter into our hearts and minds as well. You can tell just from the tone, like, numbers is deadly serious, but it's also seriously relevant, even to us. We can see that through a big Slabs of the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians 10 that we read before, and Hebrews 3 that we're going to read in a moment. These passages both illustrate that Numbers is divinely intended to help us similarly fear, similar judgment from our righteous God. This passage emphasizes that our choices and desires and priorities are a matter of life and death. So the Israelites' experience of slavery and being stuck, starving, and wandering in the desert may seem like, quite frankly, quite unrelatable to us. But many of you will also remember that the idea of um, slavery in Egypt is kind of a metaphor, a picture of our slavery to sin. Um, it's a slavery that requires rescue by God. And the wilderness itself serves as a vivid picture of this era, the time between our divine rescue, Christ's sacrifice, and our future eternal, eternal destiny with Him. So during this time of wilderness, we experience many trials, many hardships, various temptations, by things that distract and seduce and captivate us by offering various forms of relief and bring a destination home in that home. If we succumb to them, it affects our life and leaves us vulnerable to a destination much worse than that which God has promised. 
And there's difficult times can uh, serve to harden our hearts towards God if we choose to be bitter or proud or self-reliant, or if we idolize our preferences, or if we give way to lesser preferences instead of prioritizing God's better promises. Or the wilderness can serve to make us more helpfully dependent and recognize our, our, our desperate need for God's aid and rescue as we trust and rely on Him. And I hope that for each of us here, as we're kind of committed to sort of being in that second category. We know that Christ experienced every temptation that we do, and in the most vivid illustration of that, Christ spent 40 days starving in the actual desert wilderness, being directly tempted. By Satan himself, something that none of us, uh, you know, Satan's not omnipresent, so he doesn't tempt most of us directly. But what sustained Jesus? It was God's word that sustained him. And God's word was the source of truth in every answer to the wide ranging taunts and temptations from the devil's lying mouth. And the same word is available to us, having been completed by the gospel and the divinely inspired work of the early church. And what's more, we have God's spirit to strengthen us and to shape our desires. The Spirit seals our inheritance and helps us to continue the journey of faith into the promised land. As we walk in step with the Spirit, we can disentangle ourselves from the lesser desires and remain free from spiritual slavery or spiritual wandering. Do you remember how uh, Israel was initially obedient and, uh, and willing as things were going well? And at the first sign of discomfort, they began to doubt God's care and love for them. Each adversity seemed to accelerate their forgetfulness of God's steadfast love, and literally as soon as they started mar- marching, they began to grumble and complain. Um, and so the question is, does that like, remind you of anyone? Um, it certainly reminds me of my natural tendency. And it's honestly like I'm going to think of examples, because you know, far too often if I get stuck leaving my street by traffic, I'm like, hey, I'm not Small point, but you know, like I think just even thinking about uh, recent months, you know, like really kind of irritable with the family in ways that kind of just betray um, like a problem there. Um, you know, kids are tired, struggling, the house is disrupted. How about you guys? You grumble, you're displeased with your co workers or your boss? How about your spouse, you married? You grumble at your children or people who have done wrong by you? You tend towards self-pity, towards complaint, and towards annoyance. It's bad. Grumbling, complaining, whinging, whining may not seem like a big deal because it's so common. Um, just that, you know, society, it's like people see it as a perfectly valid response to hardship. But consider that this murmuring and complaining is really the central problem in this portion of numbers that we've read. The crime of Israel in this book which warranted God's angry judgment was the crime of complaining. According to numbers, this tendency towards dissatisfaction warranted uh, their deaths in the wilderness. And so Christians, consider this. The death penalty for our grumbling is just as lethal, and certainly warrants death. And yet, the one righteous man has carried the guilt earned by our dissatisfaction and our complaints on our grumbling. And when you consider Christ, just as a case study in contrast, when you think of Christ's complaints and Christ's self-pity, like, like an example, an example, one, like, Jesus silently took our guilty verdict, but that defense while he was beaten beyond recognition. He was ridiculed while he hung until he was suffocated. 
They said, if you can save others and rebuild the temple in three days, surely you can save yourself if they're not here. And yet Isaiah prophesied Jesus' future faithfulness of his plan in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened up his mouth like a lamb was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers in silence, so he opened not his mouth. Um, everybody, I, 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 lyrics to a song by Ben called The Welcome Wagon, which is, never said a mumbling word, it seems in stark contrast to my own tendency to my own protest or trivial inconveniences and upsets. They sing, they led him to Pilate's bar, but he never said a mumbling word. Not a word, not a word, not a word. They all cried, crucify. Not a word, not a word, not a word. We nailed him into a tree, but he never said a mumbling word. Not a word. Not a word. Not a word. And, I mean, it's Jesus, like, God man, so, yeah, it seems like maybe, oh, I think Jesus could do it, but that's good for him, but, like, not really possible for us. But Jesus made it possible because he did it for the joy that was set before him. And we too have this same imperishable, glorious inheritance ahead for us. Our joyful intimacy with God and the anticipation of our promised inheritance. What should be this wonderful immunization against and antidote for the tendency to grumble? So I want to offer just a personal illustration of this because I think like, it risks being a little bit abstract and easily kind of forgotten. Um, we're all tempted to grumble in various ways and certainly not beyond it. Uh, so it's typically illustrated in my life during past family Christmas with my brothers and their families. Um, I was genuinely horrified about what came out of my mouth in a just brief moment. Um, I was worried about what it said about my thought life and because it reflected major problems in my heart. And so, recognizing the seriousness of the bad fruit that was appearing, I recruited help from my lovely wife and set about applying the gospel. I used it to identify to the extent I could, the problematic roots that eventually had grown into the rough fruit of my annoyance and my self-temperateness and my laments about family dynamics and my blame shifting and my critical attitude and my sucking and my responding with a short, unexpected, angry outburst which deeply upset my sister-in-law, and quite easily so. And whilst it was barely visible to others, this was evidence to me of an inner train wreck. It's a cluster of symptoms that every sign that left untreated would become spiritually fatal. So I did a preemptive post-mortem of the condition, seeing to diagnose what led to this grumbling, complaining state, and it was a sober, cheerful task to take the time to do that. But as I sought him, God showed me ways in which I was seeking to do things that only he can do. And I was seeking to control things that were solely in his control. I was seeking to find relief and refuge from a hard year in my family rather than in God. And I had selfish desires for family closeness, and I had vain hopes of being thought well of. I had hopes uh, of a faith that would cost little, but be celebrated and shared by my unbelieving brothers. And ultimately, I had a lack of trust in God's divine goodness. So then, appreciating this, I set about applying the gospel to this nest. And what a liberating, joy-producing gospel it is. What relief when I recognize that what I cannot do, that Christ has already done, and will accomplish within me. That God saves me from my desperate desire to be in control. And I recall that there is only one word, and it is, and I am not, I am not him. Um, what a relief is it to know that God is all knowing, all seeking, and all powerful. He's kind, and He's loving, and He's patient, and He's slow to anger. 
and God ministers to my every need and satisfies every good desire. And he does not leave me, and he will not forsake me. And he has compassion for the contrite and broken-hearted sinner who seeks him. And so, church, as we seek the Lord, we can all find hope and healing and just kind of remedy for the things that would otherwise just be like corrosive kind of cancerous inside us. Grumbling is definitely a problem. Complaining is spiritually significant. It was serious for me. And, you know, like, to be honest, like, it's still like an ongoing wrestle that I think I need to uh, keep um, a short account for. But it matters as we think about this uh, account in Israel, and um, please let's all be reaching out to God for help. Um, so just consider the sober thought. Those who died in the long disaster die in the wilderness, and consider how God allows people to reject him and receive his punishment. Now, though they changed their minds after God had pronounced his judgment, it's too late. They were commanded to return to the wilderness and were chased by the enemies of the way here. So be warned, be careful about what you want and desire. If you settle for far less than God's promised best for you, God may well allow you to chase lesser things and to experience the due punishment for your sin. Um, if you can be satisfied with simple compromises, it will be a deceptive and short-lived comfort. For those who are unrepentant and have not clung to Christ, God's judgment will come like a thief in the night. But so, Scripture says that God's judgment will allow sleeping spouses to be separated by His judgment. One will be found in Christ and one will be found apart from Christ. And God would have been totally justified to unleash His fury uh, on those people in Israel, but instead He repeatedly forgives, showing patience and mercy. Because Justice will be done. Israel is from the war and not to rebel against the Creator and King. And so are we. Hebrews 10 31 says, It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we see the patience and mercy of God extend right throughout the Old Testament and the New. Most clearly seen in the death of Jesus on our behalf. And what's more, God continues to delay his final judgment so that more people might bow the need to him. God's forbearance and patience is kindness, which is intended to lead us to repentance. And unlike Israel, who experienced quite swift judgment and consequences for their sin, we exist in a moment of time where God's kindness and forbearance and patience are meant to lead us to that repentance. This delaying, uh, this delaying of judgment is an act of mercy, that more of us might be saved and spared this wrath. 2 Peter 3 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some can slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And this is because God is faithful and he always has a deep, unshakable commitment to keep his covenant promises. Numbers 23, 19 points out that God is not human, that he should lie, not a human being, that he should change his mind. Now the confidence of God's people is not based on our faithfulness to him, but on God's faithfulness to us. Because God has made a covenant the blessings that God has promised for the earth. And when he promised that he would make uh, Israel a great nation, he did. From 70 descendants who entered Israel, they had reached that 603,550 uh, men of fighting age when God rescued them, and these numbers were still increased, even after all of that generation died, it was increased, um, it was of more than 2 million Israelites had eventually entered the promised land. So we too can have confidence in many promises found throughout scripture. Because God intends to honor them all. They can be the basis of our prayers. Like Aaron's blessing, we can find hope and the grace and peace extended to us by God. 
And God can even use like non-Christians to bless his people as the prophet relevant in uh, Numbers 22 to 24. But for us, the climax of God's love can be found in Christ. In Christ, God deals definitively with our sin, bringing peace and reconciliation. Jesus is the ultimate expression of this life of Aaron's blessing to us as God's people. And God promises even more. We can promise eternal life and fellowship with God as we anticipate the far greater promised land, which is yet to come. And he's put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. It says, to the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. And indeed, we can be confident of this, knowing that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. God wanted to make sure, make the unchanging nature of his promises very clear to the heirs of his promise. And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now here's a question for our numbers passage. When almost every adult Israelite rescued by God from Egypt was destroyed for their rebellion, what allowed the next generation to go into the promised land? But it wasn't because they were perfectly righteous, it was a reflection of God's grace and mercy. In our, our inheritance is also that of sinners saved by grace. And so we're right to persevere, trusting in this God of grace. God chastised Israel for unbelief. They saw God's glory and sign. They doubted his power and they refused to obey his voice. But we must all keep our eyes fixed on Christ, who is, for, uh, who is for us a sign of God's resolute determination to provide for and love us far better than we deserve. Furthermore, Christ rising from the, uh, the grave, Serves the dramatic demonstration of God's power and God's worthiness. In, in, in numbers, this is quite a reason they well led, even though they ultimately rebelled. They had a leader in Moses who was quite faithful to them. And Moses was imperfect, and despite his best efforts to lead people, he himself was not allowed himself to enter the promised land. But he also served as this extraordinary mediator for Israel in the wilderness. Moses faithfully mediated between the people and Yahweh, who showed himself and spoke clearly to Moses in a way that has never happened before. Far more than Moses, no one knows the Father more intimately than the Son, our long-awaited mediator, far greater, far more faithful than Moses. But now, because Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, has dwelt among us and given us the Holy Spirit, Jesus has enabled us to know, enabled us to know God more fully than Moses himself ever knew God. And Jesus, the God man, invites us to follow him. He knows how to lead us to our eternal inheritance, because heaven is his home. And as he leads us, he teaches us both words and the gospel and the spirit that he's left us. The leading of Christ prepares us to be ready and pleasing to the Lord when we will be with him. Jesus is the greater Moses who leads us out of slavery, sin and death, and sustains us in the wilderness as we await our understanding. So the last passage I've been first today, that's been the Um Hebrews 3, chapter 6. The final theme I want us to remember is God's purpose that we would all help one another to stay on the right track. As I've been reminded by Scripture and moved by God's Spirit, we play a role in each other's lives to run the race well and persevere in our journey of faith. I think this is a community project. We have a special role to speak faith sustaining words to our spouses and our family and our church family. In the same vein as God allowed people to be. God allows people to be his voice in evangelism, but also allows us to be instrumental voices to help each other persevere in the faith. So we've got a community made possible by Jesus, which is sustained by Jesus, um, and to help us love Jesus more and more each week. And it's a central task for us to know each other, to be known, to share honestly, to be involved in the hardship of each other's lives, so that we don't end up being tackled 
in isolation by the devil and his lies. Um, so, just uh, as, as we read the Hebrews, think, look at um, so that collective communal nature of sanctification. You tend to just kind of think of faith as like an individual thing as of our society, but that's true. Christ is faithful over God's house as the Son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our heart. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, not hard in your hearts as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers were disciples, and saw my works for forty years, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, and I swore for my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we have indeed hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who led in Egypt after Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? And was it not those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? But we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. But the good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united in the faith of those who listened. So the central part of our exhortation is the reminder to each other that the trustworthy promises of God are better than the deceitful promises of sin. Sin tells lies which deceive us about God's goodness and God's trustworthiness and His power. And as we witnessed in the Israelites who witnessed the fruit of Canaan but refused to step in the promised land, sin makes us crazy. It gives us bizarre confidence in our own ability. It fools us into thinking that life will be better for us to ignore God and do what we want. It involves our desires to harden our hearts against God and sets us up for God's judgment. In this way, sin is suicidal, self-destruction. Because of the seriousness of this, we are to encourage each other to keep our eyes on the better promises given by God. The Gospel Church, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and offer the of our faith. And that's all we can do. Um, to doing all that we can to help each other continually experience the joy of the Lord, the joy that's set before us in all circumstances, as we wait and on the day Christ comes again. So let us make every effort to be people taking the invitation of God to enjoy a promised inheritance. Let us not reject his generosity uh, to face his judgment and wrath. Let us be a community that helps each other to pursue the grace of our Lord and hear his voice proclaim, well done, good and faithful servant, come into the joy of the Master. So, so I'm going to pray uh, a prayer based on Psalm 67, which was itself based on Aaron's blessing for numbers. Our God, please be gracious to us and bless us. Lord, would you make your face to shine upon us, so that through us you reign all nations, from Australia to New Guinea to Gaza to beyond. Let the peoples praise you, O oh God, as the peoples praise you. God, would you impress your word upon us and help each of us to fear you and to find complete joy in you, which is about the joy that's set before us. Help us, Lord, to wisely and lovingly help each other. May we not be found grumbling or desiring blessed things, but fill our hearts with love for you and grant us, Lord, the opportunity to share the gospel this week 
We ask for your name's sake, for your glorious reputation and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.